This drink is so good. Hi, everyone. I'm Heaven. I'm Tracy. And welcome to another round with Heaven and Tracy. Woo! Yay! <laughs> I feel like at one point we're going to need to change up the intro. <laughs> I know. Well, I tried. Wow. They didn't really. <laughs> so sarcastic. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> On to our show. On to the show. Uh, what do we got for the people today, Tracy? Well, for the people, we have lots of bourbon. Um, <laughs> that's more for us. Yes. <laughs> for us, we have lots of bourbon. Also, we have another edition of Tracy's Animal Corner. Woo! I'm really excited. Um, we also have the first installment of our brand new in-house game show, Six Degrees of Housing Separation with Gene Demby of NPR's Code Switch. That is not how you say it, Tracy. What? Six degrees oh. of housing <laughs> segregation. Ba-dum, ba-dum, ba-dum. Very fun show, guys. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be great. And also, we will be talking to investigative reporter Nicole Hannah-Jones about stuff. <laughs> she writes about so many things, honestly. I yeah, don't even know where I didn't to even start. know what to pick out. She writes about music. She writes a lot about segregation and education, public school system, affirmative action, like literally everything. Seriously, everything. So we're going to talk to her about everything. So let's get going. Well, kids, it is that time again. What time is it? <laughs> <laughs> Thank Sorry, you, I Kevin. missed my Good cue. <laughs> <laughs> it's time for Tracy's Animal Corner. Animal corner. <laughs> talking about birds most of the time. One day we'll talk about things that don't fly. Maybe. <laughs> beautiful, Tracy. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm super excited about this edition of Tracy's Animal Corner because this is an animal that has flown into my heart, you might say. Oh my God. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> this is how we're starting today. <laughs> pigeons, man. I feel like pigeons just get such a bad rap. People love to say that pigeons are just like rats with wings. So insulting to an animal <laughs> that is doper than many people know. I feel like I thought people... you were going to say doper than many people. <laughs> <laughs> I know a lot of people. <laughs> Who I would rank below pigeons in my life. <laughs> you ain't lying. <laughs> Why don't you like pigeons, Evan? They like shit. Okay, everybody shit. <laughs> pigeons can't help Everyone that. Everyone poops. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's like at inopportune times and they're flying over you and then they shit on you. That's not fun. I don't shit over people. <laughs> That'd be horrible. Okay, that being said, I feel like that's not enough to hate pigeons. First of all. I'm good. <laughs> They are super romantic. They mate for life, which means they are much more faithful than your ex. <laughs> Point for pigeons. Point for pigeons. They are really smart. Mm. Pigeons are often placed on lists of the most intelligent animals. What? Yes, I swear to God. Carrier pigeons. So, like, they can be trained. You know what, like, the deal with carrier pigeons, right? <laughs> I actually don't. So happy to explain this. So <laughs> it's actually not that much to explain, but like during um which war? During the <laughs> during the wars, during all of the wars, um, World War One, military soldiers would train pigeons to carry secret messages for them across enemy lines. There's one pigeon in particular, 
named, I don't know how to speak French, named Cher Ami. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. My dear friend. This pigeon saved <laughs> nearly 200 soldiers, French soldiers. I'm um, sorry. I'm sorry. What? <laughs> exactly. Listen, this pigeon, and I'm reading this from the Smithsonian's website. So the Smithsonian says that he was a registered black. He. <laughs> <laughs> he was a registered black Czech cock. <laughs> Is it cock? Carrier pigeon. One of 600 birds owned and flown by the U.S. Army Signal Corps in France during World War One. So he delivered 12 important messages for the Americans, right? Across enemy lines. Got shot in the breast. Somehow still made oh it to his destination. That's what the Smithsonian Jesus. says. <laughs> if you're prepared to call the Smithsonian a liar, I, I mean, guess you can do that. What a narrative, though. I mean, it's, <laughs> right? This is exciting. So it says, just a few hours after the message was received, the message that Sherami was carrying, 194 survivors of the battalion were safe behind American lines. How many people have you saved in more heaven? <laughs> I don't know. I've don't never know. saved I just any. sit and shit. I don't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that. That's really, really freaking impressive. I honestly didn't know like carrier pigeons were real. Ta-da. Amazing. So they're highly trainable. They can also recognize individual people like by facial features. Is that why they bother me specifically? They could be. <laughs> yeah. They feel your bad vibes and they're just like, no. Overall, they're just trying to live, you know? People always talk about how dirty they are. Maybe the cities that they're living in shouldn't be so dirty. Maybe. Maybe that. No one's, yeah, no one's going to argue that. Okay, point for pigeons. (laughs) Point for pigeons. Pigeons are dirty because we are dirty. We need to sweep around our own front doors, as my grandmother would say, before we talk about somebody else's dirt. (laughs) Also, this is what really endeared me to pigeons in the first place. Mm. I say this all the time, and I say it because I mean it. Pigeons are the black man of the bird world. For everyone who's like, what the fuck, Tracy? <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> well, pigeons and doves, same thing. They're the same animals. Doves, like same species, just different colors? Doves, exactly. Doves are pigeons. Pigeons are doves. But which one gets all the love and is like in the Bible for being like peacemakers and no, oh, they're so beautiful. Let's <laughs> set them free at weddings and at funerals. Oh my gosh. That always fails. <laughs> always. <laughs> But they're white ones. If doves were black, they would be pigeons and everybody would hate them. Why aren't, why don't I see more doves then? Hey, man, it's a good question. I don't know. Where are they at? Where they at? <laughs> well, they've all been harvested to let go at people's weddings. Wow. I don't know. <laughs> you made that up. <laughs> I, just, I just made it up. You could have but said anything right there. I would have I know, you. I know. So, like, one is white, one is black. One has the better life and not the privilege. The other one doesn't. I relate. That's all I'm trying to say. I relate to pigeons. Pigeon lives matter. Pigeon lives matter. <laughs> oh so my God, Tracy. don't hate pigeons. I mean, seagulls. Let's let's put all of our hate that we have for pigeons into seagulls. <laughs> That's seagulls fair. That's are fair. horrible. They're horrible. They're terrible. Like, pigeons typically will leave you alone. You know, they may not get out of your way if you live in a city Mm. but i mean like if you are anywhere near a seagull and the seagull has beef with you wants some of what you eat and that's it it's over it's (laughs) directly in your face that's so true the (laughs) biggest threat in the bird world seagulls (laughs) not pigeons anyway guys that's why you should love pigeons more if you hate pigeons but you love doves you might be racist so, oh my god <laughs> figure it out and on that note <laughs> this has been tracy's animal corner <laughs> peace
pigeon, pigeon. <laughs> Incredible. Thank you. <laughs> pigeon, pigeon. <laughs> we need a trap remix. We need a trap remix. <laughs> We are so excited to have Gene Demby. If you recall, he's the fourth guest we've ever had on the show. He's the lead blogger at NPR's Code Switch, and we're very excited to be connecting with him from Washington, D.C. Yay! We are very excited to have Gene here for a little segment I'm going to call Six Degrees of Housing Segregation. We're going to have we're gonna have the music <laughs> later when I when we do the actual intro. So, no. Y'all been talking about this forever and that was the best y'all could do music-wise? No, it's hey, not. Okay, hold on, guys. Here's what you're not going to do. everyone. Okay. Okay. From Bob and Jerome Studios in New York City, Yay. it's Six Degrees of Housing Segregation. Yay. Uh, Gene Dundee, come on down. You're the next contestant. Oh my, I'm waving to the crowd. I'm slapping the crowd. <laughs> everybody. Right uh, welcome to the show. I'm Bob Barker. <laughs> We're going to be giving Gene three random topics that we pulled from the news. And he has 90 seconds to bring us from that topic to housing segregation in oh six degrees gosh, okay. or less. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. I'm so nervous. <laughs> you ready, Gene? I'm so nervous. <laughs> I'm very nervous, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. So, Gene, why do you always tweet about this? <laughs> I feel like every tweet I see, Gene is like, you know what this comes back to. <laughs> so what is it? What do you think it is about housing segregation that makes it six degrees from every ill society is facing? <laughs> you make it sound like I'm like the dude from the nation who just got out of prison. Like, you know what this is about for real, though, right? I mean... <laughs> you know, it's just when we write about race, like all the stuff, when you talk about racial disparities, we talk about education, when you talk about like household wealth, we talk about like health outcomes. All that stuff is about where you live, right? And all that stuff is about the way our policies have been formed. I'm not going to be super boring about this, but race and space, basically. Mm. If you grow up in the hood, the hood exists for a reason. If you grow up in the suburbs, the suburbs exist for a reason. And those reasons are explicitly racial. Um, And whenever we talk about this stuff, it's always like, you can only, you can always like, you know, do just a little bit of digging, a little bit of poking, like, oh, this is about race policies, right? We're talking about school, we're talking about obesity rates, all that stuff is about where you live and all that stuff about, and where you live is about race. Word. So we're going to put Gene to the test, guys. <laughs> the topic is the recipe for pumpkin spice lattes has changed recently to include actual pumpkin. <laughs> the oh quote from Starbucks blog <laughs> is it will be made with real pumpkin and without caramel coloring. Gene, how does this relate to housing segregation? <laughs> Eleanor, 90 seconds on the clock. And Go. Okay, let us stipulate that pumpkin spice <laughs> is about <laughs> is about race, right? Because we okay. always talk about pumpkin spice and basicness, and we talk about uh, pumpkin spice and UGG boots. We're talking about white people. We're talking about white women. That's what we're talking about implicitly, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, pumpkin spice is a uh, uh, <laughs> belongs to the taste palette of a certain kind of white people, at least in people's uh, ideas, right? Um, pumpkin spice is also one of the like st- staples of the fall Starbucks menu, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, so Starbucks, uh, is always on the front lines of gentrification. It's always the first thing you know when your hood is gentrifying. You're like, oh, Starbucks is here. It's over. Every, right, pack it up. Uh, this bodega gonna close down. The Starbucks is here, right? <laughs> Word, true, true. <laughs> okay. And so then, uh, you have the foodies who come in with gentrification, right? Um, they're like, no, we only want natural stuff. We want, like, artisanal pumpkin spice, which is ridiculous <laughs> because pumpkin spice is... 
the name of a Bath and Body Works uh, uh, aroma, probably. <laughs> That's what it is. What does pumpkin spice even mean? Okay, so you get from the introduction of Starbucks to, or the introduction, you have this, uh, you have this white people flavor. I'm simplifying here. You have this white people flavor <laughs> coming in with Starbucks on the bleeding edge of gentrification. And once they get into the neighborhood, they're like, no, we want the, we want the real shit. We want the realest shit. And left. the realest shit is uh, natural, non-artificial pumpkin spice flavor. Boom. That's time. Yeah. I was very impressed. Wow. So we went from... <laughs> <laughs> we went from pumpkin spice latte to, like food deserts <laughs> and housing segregation from like the way the hood works when mm. gentrification happens. All right. Yeah. Uh, all that right. was like two degrees. Was that reasonable? <laughs> yeah. Was, was that, was, was, was right. that plausible? I will <laughs> give you that round, G. Point for me. All Thank right. you. What do I get if I win? Uh, uh, our love and attention. Yeah, I already get that. I mean, this, you know what I mean? You get double the amount. So the next round is the fight over Uber. So what I mean by that is Uber has been uh, is a car service app that's been around for a while, but it's been growing extensively and aggressively uh, the past few years. So part of the controversy is how they treat and categorize their employees. Are they contractors? Are they employees? Their relationships and competition with the, the existing like taxi economy, <laughs> their relationship to like government regulation, how they handle reporters covering them. I feel like if you were to like make a parody of capitalism... Uber would be the company you invent. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Gene, let's go from the fight over Uber to housing segregation. You ready? Okay. Okay. I can do this. 90 seconds on the clock. Go. So let us stipulate. No, I'm joking. (laughs) 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 So, all right, I'm a black dude, right? And I've lived in inner cities. I lived in, as an adult, I lived in New York and I live in D.C. If you are a black dude in D.C., you cannot get a cab. That's just the reality of it, right? Mm. Like, I just could not get a cab. I could not hail a cab. Um... That's, there's a bunch of reasons for that. They're all really complicated. But the thing is, when Uber came around, it was a godsend, right? It was it was a, a really, really, really um, uh, important introduction into to my life, at least. I mean, even though it's messed up and they have all these sort of weird politics, mm. like I could actually get in a car to go places because I was shut out of the taxi cab economy. And yeah. I should say, and this is important, the taxi cab economy in D.C. especially is heavily East African. Yeah, um, Ethiopians mostly. <laughs> exactly. And so, and this is how housing segregation ties into all of this. I think I can do this. I think I can do this one. Okay. <laughs> um, so um, the fight over taxi cabs in D.C. has also become a racial fight, not just for like who gets to be in a cab, but who makes up the taxi cab economy, the traditional taxi cab economy. Mm. Because allowing Uber into D.C. also means that these East African neighborhoods in D.C. get hit really economically hard, right? Because suddenly the people who presumably will be part of their consumer base are taking these other you know, non-regulated uh, uh, options, the alternatives. Yeah. And so you have these East African neighborhoods that are like really, really fighting hard to sort of crack down on Uber. And they're East African neighborhoods because there's housing segregation and everything. Time. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Tracy? How about that one? I do like the dismount at the end. The dismount was nice. Was I'm not nice going to lie. Yeah. <laughs> we did go from like Gene's personal experience with like discrimination Mm -hmm. with taxis to the actual taxi economy to how east african people in the taxi economy live Mm -hmm. i think that counts i think that's another point i think that's three degrees (laughs) i try to contextualize your whole experience (laughs) i see you i see you with the history and context all right so we're on a clean sweep it looks like okay all right final topic gene the pope 
the holy man is coming to Philadelphia mm. at the end of September. This is Pope Francis's first visit to the United States. Mm. And he's going to be there for the World Meeting of Families, which is the largest gathering of Catholic families, some sort of convention situation. And then he's going to do like a Sunday mass. When I was in Philly for Made in America, there is a giant billboard that made it seem like the Pope co-signs Philly. What? <laughs> like Pope approved Philadelphia. <laughs> it's like, what is this billboard about? But anyways, people are excited. The Pope is coming to Philly. Jean, can you take us from the Pope's visit to housing segregation in six degrees or less? <laughs> All right. The clock's already Go. So this one is like right over the plate for me. I'm a Philadelphian. I'm a Catholic. I'm a black dude. Um, the Pope is coming to Philly and um, my mom is <laughs> going to be there because she's all, and, oh, the Pope is coming. The Pope is coming. Um, which is crazy because she's an old black lady who has decided to see this old white dude who <laughs> uh, lives across the, country, the other side of the world uh, who makes decisions about her beliefs. Um, anyway, um, <laughs> I will say, hmm, so this one is actually, hmm, okay. Um, so I want to make some tie here between the cost of Airbnb uh, uh, apartments when the Pope is in Philly, but I don't want to do that. I really <laughs> want to talk about what it means to be a Philadelphian uh, with certain kinds of facial hair. The Pope... Ooh. <laughs> um, Go on. <laughs> uh, the Pope... Uh, if, as you've seen, he's like clean shaven, whatever, whatever. And black dudes from Philly, uh, we are not the Pope, obviously. Um, <laughs> they have, we have most big, beards. <laughs> yes, we have big beards. I just recently trimmed mine, but um, they have these big beards. And I feel like I, I'm not going to be able to make this work. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to make this work. How are you going from um, your facial hair to the Pope? Jeez. I was going to try to make a. 20 seconds on the clock. Uh, man. Um, oh, man. I, I can't do this one. This is this is too. Uh, Not with that attitude, so the, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> the Pope. Uh, three, two, one. <laughs> <laughs> Dang, Tracy, no chill. <laughs> oh my gosh! Uh, this so one was close. hard. <laughs> it was tough. It was. This one was hard. I, was I gonna have say something no out. idea how I do it. Philadelphian black black people in Philadelphia like this really really big black Muslim population of Philly that I was gonna make a joke of, or make a joke not a joke I was gonna oh make a connection God. between blackness and Islam and Philadelphia and that's all tied into segregation and why black Catholics like my mom and my family are sort of outliers even among even because they're there's blah, blah, blah. but no I can't do it oh yeah if only you had made any of these points during <laughs> the last minute. <laughs> Yeah. All right, you're two out of three, Jean. That's not formidable. Bad, not bad. Round of applause. Well, round of applause for Jean Demby, everyone. Mr. Jean Demby. Do I get like a um, the showcase? You get nothing. You get a you try wow, button. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. We love you, Jean. We do. Thank, Thank you, you so much for having me. With us. As usual, follow Gene for all of his housing segregation <laughs> tweets. <laughs> so fun on I Twitter. I promise. <laughs> so fun. They are more coherent. And, no, and honestly, less... your Twitter is like one of the only places where I see actual conversations happening on Twitter, like thoughtful ones. And you can occasionally oh, see him you. screaming at trolls. Which it's is beautiful. It's just so nice. <laughs> Gene, <laughs> tell the people what your Twitter is. Uh, my Twitter is G-E-E-D-E-E-215. Philly represent. Um, that's GD215. And where can people find your work? I write at Code Switch. That's uh, it's npr.org slash Code Switch. I also write at Post Bougie, where we have a podcast. Tracy is my longtime blog mate at uh, Post Bougie. Hey. Um, hey. We go back a million years. <laughs> Squad. Yo, thanks so much for coming through. 
That was Six Degrees of Housing Segregation with Gene Dimby. Today we are honored and incredibly excited to have Nicole Hannah-Jones on the show. She's an investigative reporter at the New York Times Magazine, but she's written all over the place and if you're not following her work, like, what are you doing? How are you living your life? <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> yes. <laughs> welcome, welcome. Yay. Thank you. So we like to ask all our guests, what do you do and why? What do I do? Um, I investigate the way that racial inequality is intentionally created and maintained. Hmm. And why? Um I noticed at a very young age that there were very stark differences in the way people lived on my side of town and on the other side of town. And Where did I'm you grow up? Always Waterloo, Iowa. Mm-hmm. Let's just get out of the way. There are black people there. <laughs> <laughs> we got lost on the way to Chicago during the Great Migration. <laughs> Didn't quite make it. I mean, we were from like the country country. So when they saw Waterloo, they thought it was the big city, but they um. weren't quite all the way to the big city. Mm. Didn't work out that way. So I'm from, I'm from Waterloo. And um, though we had a fairly small black population, it is Iowa after all. There were enough of us that they still managed to segregate us mm. on our own side of town. So I was always a very, you know, bookish, loved history, wanted to understand why things were like they were. And so that's why I started being a journalist. I was actually... Um, I was taking our one semester black studies class in high school oh, with wow. Mr. Ray Dial, who was my only black teacher in mm. high school. Mm. And I told him I was complaining about our high school newspaper. I was bused to a white high school. And I told him I didn't like how the paper never wrote about kids like me. And mm. he was like, if you don't like it, write for the paper or I don't want to hear about it anymore. Ooh. So I joined a paper. My that first is- column was from the African perspective. Uh, <laughs> that was the name of, oh my, my God. of my uh, weekly column or monthly. I think it was a monthly paper. My monthly column was from That's so the African dope. perspective. What yeah. kind of stuff did you write about in this column? I did a column on, was Jesus black? <laughs> yes! <laughs> <laughs> I was never able to prove either way, but I, I made a good case. My first newspaper award was on a column I did on... Um, the stereotypes about our side of town and the kids who were being bussed into the school. Mm. And that's when I really got the bug because I just realized how much we needed our own voice and we needed to be telling our own stories. Mm. So You talked a little bit about like being really bookish. Mm-hmm. What were some of the books or like pop culture things that were transformative for you in, in your childhood and growing up? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, when I was really young... Well, I used to get grounded a lot, so <laughs> I would um, be grounded to my room with no television, and so I read, like, every book in the house, and my dad loved Louis L'Amour, so I read, like, every Louis L'Amour book, all the Western books, and then my mom was really into Judith Krantz, and so I read her, and her books always had, like, lots of sex scenes, so <laughs> that was really awesome. <laughs> <laughs> to this day, I'm like, Mom, you. I guess you're just happy I was reading a lot. <laughs> I was definitely not. Oh my god! Have my child reading Judith <laughs> Krantz. Um, I think the first black book I read was like Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, or something. Oh, mm-hmm. I fell in love with that book. Classic, when I was right? Which yes. was like the one black book <laughs> yes, you would get right, in school, yes. right? Right. And it was really like taking this black studies class in high school, where this it's just like. a you know the curtain was opened Mm -hmm. and I was like oh like 
we have like a huge freaking history, like mm-hmm. a long history. And it, it sounds silly to say it now, but you only know what you've been exposed to. And I'd never been exposed to anything. And also this book called um, They Came Before Columbus. Ooh. Uh, I read that in high school and it got me in trouble because then I would like come into my history class and challenge my history With professor attitude, about things. Right, exactly. Yes. <laughs> like yes. actually the Olmecs were like, you know, those Olmec heads were from Africa. And you'd be like, Nicole, not today. Just, <laughs> oh please, my gosh. Sit during, down. So during yeah. my like racial awakening when I was the worst, <laughs> the worst 18 year old in the world. Right. My niece, like I would might <laughs> be like <laughs> So we are 11 years apart, right? Me and my niece. And I'd be like, so, you know. What? She's younger or older? She's younger. Uh-huh. Yeah, she's younger. And I'd be like, so, you know, what's your homework like? What'd you learn today? And she'd be like, oh, we learned about how Lincoln freed the slaves. I was like, you go tell your teacher. <laughs> this is actually how it went down. And my mom was like, you have got to stop. You're going to get this child in trouble. I'm like, she needs to know the truth. Right. You need to tell the babies the truth. I was, I was terrible. But it's great. Horrible. Like that period of time when you like. I mean, I just remember feeling like so much anger mm-hmm. yeah. because I'm like all this time when I thought we weren't shit, we right. actually were shit. Yes. Right. But it's like all these years, the only, like all you got was like somebody owned you uh-huh. and then you had to wait for them to free you. Right. And that was it. Mm-hmm. And so like learning like black history and like reading all those books, like we, me and my friend, like, you know, a lot of black folks got radicalized mm-hmm. in high school. And I have this, we like led these walkouts and like all this stuff. And I have I this picture it. in a newspaper I'm wearing like my Malcolm X medallion. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, and I'm like, it's not that we're against white people. <laughs> we're just for black we're people. For and I'm like, people. I know my mom, who is white, was like, what the hell? <laughs> oh my god! What gosh. have I done? Now, to her credit, she let me, you know, work my way through it. She, she didn't get, internally, she was probably in turmoil, but she let me work my way through it. Mm, beautiful. <laughs> so you have this incredible This American Life episode that you just recently did, where you reported about education and integration basically i was bawling by the end Mm. (laughs) it is incredibly moving and like uh, like a testament to like what real reporting and journalism and storytelling can be Mm -hmm. but i want to set it up a little for the people who are like not living their best lives and haven't heard it yet (laughs) everyone always talks about education reform but the one thing that seems to never come up in those conversations that has proven to be effective is integration So at the beginning, you talk about watching Mike Brown's mom during like this very difficult time in her life. But one of the things she was thinking about was like, I got a black man to graduate high Mm. school. I was watching the coverage of Michael Brown almost a year ago, like the rest of America. There was one moment that I could not get out of my head. It's news footage of his mother, Leslie McSpadden, right after he was killed. This was wrong and that was cold-hearted. She's standing in a crowd of onlookers, a few feet from where her son was shot down, where he would lie face down on the concrete for four hours, dead. And this is what she says. You took my son away from me. You know how hard it was for me to get him to stay in school and graduate. You know how many black men graduate? Not many. How did you begin to find, like, the people to to make this story real. What's important to know is like when Michael's, Michael Brown's mom says that about, you know how hard it is for to get a black man to graduate? Mm. Her son was literally still lying on the concrete. Mm. So the thing that struck me about that was like, you are a mom who has lost your baby. Your baby is lying on the ground behind you dead and you are talking about school. Mm. Mm-hmm. 
which in one way is like defies every stereotype we have about black kids like Michael Brown, like and their parents that they don't care about school. And the reason they're in shitty schools is just because they don't want better. Um, but I'd also been writing about school segregation for like the past year and a half. So, mm. of course, that just like raised my antenna. So I started just a quick Google search. It didn't take but a couple of minutes to figure out Michael Brown had went to the worst school district in the state, mm. the most segregated school district in the state. So basically, Missouri has a, a law that says if a district becomes unaccredited, those students have the right to transfer to any nearby accredited district mm-hmm. of their choice. And the district can't tell them no. And um, their home district has to pay for them to go, mm. which is a very radical law. Yes, that's rare. <laughs> that's wild. <laughs> Considering what we know about what districts are successful and which districts are failing, it's usually completely racial. This transfer law was letting the students of Normandy which is where he went to school, go to other districts, which happened to be white. So suddenly you had a, like a quarter of the Normandy school district leaving the district, and that was a big deal. So the state decides, we can't have that. And they tried to change the accreditation status of the district and tell those students they had to come back to their failing district. And so the parents sued. And that's kind of where I was able to find student. The student, Mario, who's in the story, was I contacted the lawyer and I asked for some of the names of the parents who had sued. And then I just talked to a bunch of them. And for many reasons, Nidra and Maria just stood out. I really enjoyed hearing not just your narration, but like your journalist voice and like in the moment as you're interviewing people. Yeah, that was dope. There's this really emotional moment where Maria is kind of uh, breaking down, just recalling one of the meetings where mm. the parents from the other district were like talking about why they don't want kids like her in the school. Mm-hmm. And I obviously was crying. <laughs> <laughs> in that moment, do you get emotional? Do you cry? Uh, I don't cry, but of course I get emotional. I'm a, mm. I'm a human being and journalists, I, like I, I actually never have subscribed to this idea that journalists are objective. Of course we're not. Right. None I mean, of, that's none the thing of us white are. people started. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It, it's it's a it's a myth that they cling that mm. you know a lot of reporters cling to, but it's obviously not true. Right? Um, white journalists experience going through white segregated schools that function well and mm-hmm. living in like high functioning white neighborhoods also absolutely impacts the way that they write about these issues. Absolutely, um, their experiences with police not harassing them. Ooh. Right. Absolutely affects whether they believe that police harassment is happening and how they report the issue. So Mm. I I am actually and and this is what I like about I think where journalism is going is I think people are much more upfront Mm. about their biases and and their experience. And then it allows the, the reader or the listener to say, okay, I know this about this person. So. Now I can examine whether I think this person has actually reported this out and whether it's true or not, as mm. opposed to this false sense of I'm unbiased. This is just the unbiased truth. Well, that it's just not true. So I'm obviously reporting this as a black woman who was bust and who realized that getting out of her segregated schools gave her a lot of opportunity. Mm. With that said, I'm also looking at all the facts and... I'm very, very careful with with my facts. So no one can actually dispute what I'm writing, even though they know that about me. Mm. When I was sitting with Maria, my eyes, I definitely got teary eyed. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're watching this girl and you're seeing her break down because people are basically saying like, you're trash and you don't deserve to be in the same classroom as my kid. Mm -hmm. Um, And just imagining her sitting there when all that is happening. Um, So I absolutely get emotional, but I think it's that emotion that allows you 
to really write the compelling narrative and to allow your listeners or your readers to also feel that same emotion. Mm, I thought that that the audio footage of that town meeting was like the most striking and infuriating part of the whole story. And I guess some background in case you haven't heard it yet. The parents of Francis Howell got together and they had a town meeting about these, this band of black kids that was going to be coming to their school from Normandy. And like, as heaven was saying, like they were just like talking about the reasons that they didn't want it to happen. And just like the vitriol that they were spewing was just like, it was just like, I'm speechless now. And that's how I was. And I heard mm-hmm. it. How did you um, get the footage, the yeah, audio I for that? I feel like most reported stories just have that as like a summary. Yeah. The fact that there's audio of it. Yeah. So the the local public radio was there. I mean, it, this was a big deal. This story mm-hmm. was huge down there at the time. You have a thousand kids from black kids from a poor district going into a very white district that didn't want them. It was a big story. So the rate, the public radio down there recorded the entire meeting. And mm. when I was reporting the written piece, I heard the tape. Mm. And that's when I was like, this has got to be a radio piece. Mm. Because even if I wrote down mm. everything that they said, there's nothing like hearing it, yes. like hearing the crowd. Yeah. It sounds like a like a mob. Yes. Um, they're even like, this didn't make it into our um, the show. But there actually was like a, a white girl who went to Francis Howe who stood up for the kids coming in. Mm. And those parents heckled her down. And she was like <gasps> one of their own. Oh so God. hearing that, but also hearing the way that they could talk about race without ever mentioning race mm-hmm. when it was mm. very clear was very illuminating for people we have both my husband and i both have worked and lived in underprivileged areas in our jobs this is not a race issue and i just want to say to if she's even still here the first woman who came up here and cried that it was a race issue i'm sorry that's her prejudice calling me a racist because my skin is white and i'm concerned about my children's education and safety this is not a race issue this is a commitment to education issue she reminded me of the apple care lady from that vine (laughs) i was told by apple care that's who she reminded me of Today, it's like, we need the racist of the week. And the only way you're racist is if you say, like, oh my God, I don't I was, like black people. Yeah. Right. They didn't have to mention race <laughs> right. for it to be very clear. When Ooh. you're mm-hmm. like if, talking about your elementary kids and you're worried about them getting stabbed. Right. Mm-hmm. Asking for metal detectors. I have like, a five-year-old. And I'm like, you're scared of my five-year-old exactly, daughter. Exactly. Exactly. You know, that's crazy. Oh, my gosh. A lot of what this story brought up for me is remembering and like thinking about how much brown kids have to learn about reading and learning white parents' language. Ooh. For example, Maria was talking about how there's this uh, honor roll celebration. She mm-hmm. was on the honor roll. So she knew to bring the letter just in case something yes. bad went mm-hmm. Like, why would that happen? Why right. as a kid would you not just be like, yo, right. I'm on the honor roll. Let's celebrate. Uh-huh. Yeah. But like the little things like that that you have to learn mm-hmm. to like survive in that world. Yeah. I think what what strikes me about all of these stories is how much of a struggle and how much black kids and and also brown kids have to go through to get an equal education. Like I was bust. It was not easy. Mm. And I should not have had to leave my neighborhood and ride the bus for two hours a day to get a good education. Mm. And Mario should not have had to do that. But over and over again, the sacrifices are always on the shoulders of black children and their Mm. families to try to chase down what is 
promised to us should yes. be equal. And I think at the end of the sh- the piece, when I'm talking to the superintendent, one, it Woo! felt it felt very <sighs> naked for people to hear my interviewing technique. Oh my god, that was fire! That was amazing <laughs> to witness. <laughs> Yo, amazing. straight like bars. <laughs> she was like, "With all due respect, great in your whole argument right here in your face." <laughs> all right. <laughs> bloop, bloop. Can I just say, with all due respect, I've had this conversation with superintendents and principals in districts that look just like Normandy and schools that look just like Normandy for more than a decade. And you can look at districts and schools with the same racial makeup in every urban community across the country. And the same thing is said. We know what we need to do, but the schools do not turn around. Typically, an entire district does not turn around. The entire district has never turned around. It has never happened. But that doesn't relieve us of the charge to attempt to do it. So you're right. It hasn't been done. However, our obligation to attempt to do it, it still remains. The kids are here. So you're right. It hasn't been done. But it's our watch. So then knowing that, knowing that in these high poverty segregated districts, the students aren't doing well, Mm -hmm. is it possible for a black child in Missouri to get an equal education? Mm. Wow, what a great question. The answer right now, I, I really don't know. And that's what, like, I challenge reporters to do is, like, if we know they're, like, feeding us a line, a bull, just, it, it's amazing when you call people on it. Mm. And they're not used to those kind of questions. Right. Mm-hmm. You get really good answers. And his answer was he didn't know, mm-hmm. which was actually him saying, no, black kid cannot get an equal education. Mm-hmm. Black kids are the most experimented on kids in the country. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who are always like, this is the next best thing. We're, we're going to try this. We're going to try that. We're going to try this. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, they're going through school not getting educated. And then we say, you know, when you want to apply to college, it's a merit system. Mm. It's not, Mm. obviously, a merit system when you've gone to a school where your teachers don't even bother to come into your classroom and you're competing with other kids who are getting the best Mm. uh, education. And so I think a lot of my work is driven by knowing all of these kids. Like I have a a five-year-old and... All of her classmates come to school so happy. She's at a mostly black school to learn. And mm. you just look at them and you wonder, when does that change? Mm. When do you stop thinking that school is for you and that people care about your education? And when do you start hating school and getting behind? And that just makes me very depressed. Ooh. Like I literally mm. sat at one of her assemblies and started crying. Mm. And I was like, get a hold of yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone else is happy, but I'm thinking about like I see the future. Mm. I, mm-hmm. I know I've done this long enough to know what happens to these kids. Most of them live in, in um, the Farragut houses. So I know what's going to happen to them, and it's not the kids, mm-hmm. it's, and it's not the parents. Mm. So. so I'm excited for this piece to win all the awards. Oh, yes, Lord. it better. <laughs> As a person who covers a lot of civil rights issues, you obviously have been covering the police brutality epidemic. And you wrote something for Politico called A Letter from Black America, where you were basically like, even amongst like a group of friends who are like well-degreed high professionals, we sometimes don't even call the police. We mm. most of the time don't Most call of the, the time, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone kind of has the talk about police brutality with their children. How do you have that conversation with your daughter? Lord knows, I, um, I don't know. After Sandra Bland, I had this, I had this moment because um, so much, I used to just not want to have a boy. Mm. And... I thought, you know, having a girl would be hard. She's going to have issues with, like, 
how she's perceived like physically and yeah. her hair and all of this. And I'm like always drilling down about her hair to the point where she's like, we don't like straight hair, mommy. And I'm like, no, I'm not. <laughs> straight hair is okay, but your hair is curly. <laughs> and so I wasn't worried about like her safety. Mm. But after Sandra Bland, and of course she was like the umpteenth black person to die right. in police custody. Mm-hmm. I just had this moment where I'm like, damn, like, I have to prepare her for that, too. I have to prepare her for police violence, too. Mm. And I was talking to my girlfriend about, like, when do... Somebody's going to take that innocence from her. She's five now. I don't know when. It has to be me. Mm. I can't let the world take it from her. I have to prepare her. So how much time can I give her before I have to do that? And that's, like, devastating to me. And I don't know the answer because, of course, like any parent... I want her to hold on to that mm. as long as possible. But I also don't want her to come home because yeah. someone else has, has, you know, exposure to it and I didn't prepare her. Mm. So I don't know. I feel like that moment where you realize whether you have a black boy or a black girl, you're still going to have like your hands full and still going to be like a heartbreak trying to raise them in society. It's just like one of the most helpless feelings because I always be like I don't want to have a girl because men are trash <laughs> and then all this happened it's like well fuck I can't have a boy either mm. I'm just going to get a puppy okay Tracy <laughs> a white puppy a white puppy or or a lion because at least if something happens in there will be, will be and, outrage yeah, white folks will not, hear about that not a American lion though. <laughs> true true <laughs> I'd have one imported yeah that that mm. would be oh a problem. my god I know I know it's hard and especially like I work at the New York Times magazine mm. you know it's like all of the things that this country says if you only do these things you don't have to worry about that yeah and it's just not true So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the upcoming uh, affirmative action case because you've written mm. about that extensively I just feel like this this case has not gone away. This is the Fisher versus Texas case mm-hmm. where a white woman claimed she was denied admission to the University of Texas because of her race. And it's gone around the Supreme Court and now it's made it to the top. And it's going to be in our lives again. <laughs> yes. As a, as a reporter, how do you approach a story like this that has already been so... That already has a lot of big misconceptions built in, which is right. like nobody really knows what affirmative action is on a basic level. Right. So the only reason I even wrote about this story was I've always had this nagging question about all of these affirmative action cases, Mm. college ones, where I'm always like, how do you know what the other people's test scores and grades were that you're saying got in above you? Yeah, there's a big presumption. (laughs) Right. I never understood how do you know. Like there's not a list of every single individual's test scores. Mm. So when this case came out and I was reading all of the coverage and I was like, I'm just really curious how she knew that. So I got the court filings Mm -hmm. and I read it and I was like, it says right in the court filings that there were all these white people who had like worse grades than black people mm. and Latinos who got into the school. And there were like a lot of Latino and black students with better grades than her who didn't get into the school. I did not understand how no one had ever written that, which tells you when yeah, I when very- I talk about <laughs> the biases yeah. that, that all reporters have, you have reporters who read that and already have their minds made up about affirmative action. Mm-hmm. Also, their assumptions about who benefits Mm. from affirmative action and that black kids are getting in that aren't supposed to. And so they weren't actually reporting the facts that were in the court filings. Mm. And so that story I did was actually one of the like most read stories I've ever done. I think it got like 500,000 hits or something because it was simply saying like, 
everything that you thought about this case, mm. which is huge, is not wrong. And even the guy who brought the lawsuit said, well, no, we don't actually know that Abigail Fisher was denied because of her race. But just the fact that they even consider race is right. a problem. Ugh. But that's not the way the lawsuit is reported. The mm. lawsuit has been reported over and over that she was denied a slot because she was white. I think people should, one, understand there's a reason why all of these plaintiffs are white women and not white men. Speak on right? it. Because no one's going to be sympathetic about a white man saying, I didn't get something. So they intentionally mm-hmm. choose mm. white women who, of course, have been huge benefactors. Yeah, you know, I think I Have benefited from affirmative action. Benefited. Of course. Right. I mean, that was actually um, when affirmative action policies were being passed in the 1960s, the way that they got them to be able to to water them down was to include women. Mm. So just like all of those things, it's like minorities and women, which of course means white women because any other women will be included as a minority (laughs) if they're not a white woman. And so you could fill your affirmative action quote unquote quotas by hiring a white woman and no one ever talks about that. Mm. And so, you know, it's different when it's black folks because you can't relate to that and you think we're always trying to get something that mm-hmm. we don't deserve. Mm. Yeah, we're not the same kind of human that they are, so it's like, what? <laughs> but it also goes what back to the This American Life piece, and this is why I talk about the the merit, the, the idea. I mean, what affirmative action is saying is we do not have an equal system. Right. And a black kid is not coming out with the same opportunity. So how can that kid score the same on an SAT when they never even had physics mm-hmm. offered at their high school? When they never even had a certified teacher teaching them English. Right. So what affirmative action tries to do is is mitigate all of our inequality in the K-12 system. And to eliminate that, um, well, this is my other thing. Like most universities are like 4 to 8% black. Right. So who's... <laughs> I'm like, all the other, you want all the seats. Right. <laughs> you know? I mean, what, it's one thing it's if like suddenly, suddenly these schools were like 50% black and right. we're only 12% of the population. Then you could be like, okay, something's like off here. Mm-hmm. But like that you're mad about like the 4% right. of seats that black folks are getting, mm. I don't Can't really have, understand. We literally cannot have anything. Yeah. <laughs> I don't understand that. Affirmative action also confuses me because the way we talk about it, or I'm not even sure I understand the legal precedent. But the way we talk about it is often that it is a benefit for white students and like the larger university community. I don't understand that part of it. The best argument for affirmative action is inequality. Right. But the Supreme Court is basically like said all of those arguments no longer stand. It has winnowed out all of those arguments. Mm-hmm. So the only argument that can be made is that one. Like right. that diversity is important, which is the weakest argument. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's the only one for whatever reason that the Supreme Court allows. So when they're arguing, when when the lawyers are arguing before the court, they can't even bring up any of the best arguments, mm-hmm. which is the problem. Here's my thing too with affirmative action. Because of course all of us who like have made it somewhere have like a whole line of people thinking that we only got here (laughs) because we're black. And this is where it's the catch-22. Because if you don't do anything with your life, it's like, you're black, you don't want anything, Mm -hmm. you have no culture of work. (laughs) (laughs) But if you do make it, it's like, oh, you didn't deserve it. Somebody gave it to you. So there's really not a way that you can win here. lose-lose situation. Mm -hmm. Except, you know, if I'm here, I'm still winning, Mm. as opposed to the people who who haven't been able to make it out. But, Mm. yeah. Another award you won recently, <laughs> where I saw you last, is the NABJ Journalist of the Year. That's yes. the National Association of Black Journalists. Well-deserved, 
But in the speech, you talk basically about how everyone's tired of the we can't find enough qualified people. There's literally a convention center full of us. <laughs> right. <laughs> literally. And I just heard so many mmms in the audience. <laughs> like a um, church service. Did you ever feel like it's just not working? Or Absolutely. hit a road where like you just couldn't do it anymore? Yeah. I mean, in my speech, when I accepted the award, I talked about four years ago, I literally was like looking at communications jobs. Mm. I was at a paper where I was like getting called into the room for meetings about writing about black people and wanting to write about black people too much. Even wow. though I actually counted all of my stories and I, they were like 10% of my stories even happened to have wow. somebody in there who was black. I remember when I, when I first started out and I was like gung-ho about race and diversity and I would try to like get the VOR veteran black reporters and they'd be like, yeah, good luck with that. And I'd be like, y'all are some sellouts. <laughs> but then I realized, mm. no, it's like they came in the same way too when you yeah. get beaten down yeah. and you either are like, I just have to put my head down and do my work or I have to like leave and go the profession. PR or something. Right. Um, so I was totally at that point four years ago and I was like in Portland, Oregon. I felt like I had like so much still to give, but mm. I was like, is this where I end? Like, is this it? Is this what I worked my whole life for is like be in Portland and then go into PR? So I think mm. it's very common. I think that newsrooms like to think of themselves as being extremely progressive and, you know, they get it and they care. But as we know, the passive aggressiveness of progressive people oh my will God. kill you. <laughs> oh, my, oh my gosh, yes. So why yeah. did you stay? You know, I got a call from Steve Engelberg at ProPublica. Mm. I was literally, like, looking for jobs. I always wanted to be a journalist. Like, mm. I could not imagine not being a journalist. It was very hard. All of my friends had left the newsroom by that point. There were, like, a, just a couple of us left. And then Steve called me and, like, saved my life. Like, he told me to come do for him what I always wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So, is that what, Steve. Is that what brought you to New York? That's what brought me to New York. Mm. And now, four years later, I'm talking to y'all. Yes. <laughs> um, my, fa my personal favorite part of your speech was when you talked about your feminist husband uh -huh. who moved around with you all the time. Yes, ma'am. Please tell us more about your feminist husband. <laughs> tell me more. We love him. <laughs> so my husband comes from like a totally traditional military, like very religious family. Mm. And uh, very early on in his relationships, our relationship, his dad was like, you need to be a man. Like you can't be following <laughs> this woman around. But mm. my husband was like, no, he's just, He's completely supportive. I cook and I let him take out the garbage because that's what we want to do. <laughs> but yeah, he's moved like over and over to support my career. And it's been pretty amazing. So. Wow. Like w how many places have y'all lived in? We moved from Georgia to North Carolina, from North Carolina to Portland, from Portland to New York. Whew. Oh, so, my God. That's, that's so a beautiful. Lot. That's yeah. a lot. Aw, shout out to the feminist husband. I know. Hey, there are some good men out there. <laughs> Where they at, though? No, <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> All right, we're going to move into our rapid fire questions segment oh, we call pew, 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 pew. You know how I get it. It's my fault that it's called pew, pew, pew. <laughs> Let me take a drink. Hold yes, on. Yes, yes. Right. Throw it back. Throw it back. Okay. We are, by this point, legally obligated to ask you this first question because Twitter gets so mad when we don't ask it of our guests. 
So question number one, how do you feel about squirrels? <laughs> squirrels are rats with furry tails. Excellent. Standing Excellent up, <laughs> My spirit is standing up. I'm not standing up. What's your favorite board game? Mm, taboo. Oh, God. I mean, cool. let her live, Tracy. No, it's fine. Taboo I get why. I get why awesome. people like taboo. It just, it just aggravates my anxiety so much. You got somebody in your ear with a little buzzer. <laughs> I know that's my favorite part. Like, eh, 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 eh. <laughs> oh my gosh, my brain always goes blank, and I'm just like, uh, uh. Okay, uh. I'll just remember not to have you on my team. <laughs> don't, don't. If you care about winning, do everything not have I do. I do with a killer instinct. So you do not want to be on my team if Ooh. you're not like. Don't cross. On it. Let's just not play. We ain't got to worry about <laughs> teams. <laughs> At what age did you become an adult? Oh, shit. Well, according to R. Kelly. Oh, Ooh! God. <laughs> 16. Oh, my gosh. My drink is so empty. <laughs> oh, shit. Okay. The aura. <laughs> what is your least favorite thing about new media? Too little reporting. Ooh. Do you want to say more? I just think there's like a lot of people who just write essays and what they think and mm. don't do much reporting. But somebody has to do the reporting or what the hell are you writing about? So mm. listen. Bloop, bloop. That's bloop, bloop, bloop. But I'm um, old school. I came up through newspapers. <laughs> I'm old school. Is there anything you miss from newspapers that you wish was like a part of new media culture? Hmm. That's a good question. That is a good question. I think just Beat local beat reporting, mm. like that's how you learn to be a good reporter. Is you're assigned to the boring ass county government, yeah, and you get to know everybody on the beat, and you have to go to the Thursday night meetings, mm. and you have to type out a story that night. I think that that's like the best training, and I think a lot of younger journalists. I know I sound old, but a lot of <laughs> younger journalists who who just come up through media are missing a lot of the basics of reporting. They don't know how to source. Um, they can't turn around a good reported story in a mm. short period of time. So I think I, I missed that. And, you know, everybody didn't have a graduate degree and everyone didn't come with this pedigree. Mm. Like, you know, you had just more like real folks and you don't see as much of that now. That is a very good point. What is your favorite 90s R&B jam? I mean, my favorite song period which is from the 90s because i am a child of the 90s is method man and mary all i need uh, can we quickly talk about how fine method man <laughs> still is he yes. just refuses Girl. to like age he refuses to <laughs> and i don't even like light-skinned men but <laughs> that one gets a pass right <laughs> that one but gets for a him, pass even i mean you know on the video he had a like weird eye contact thing but even so uh-huh. yeah, that is like my all time favorite song period yeah, so. that's a great that's plus anything Mary back then true yes. my life come on my life is one of my favorite albums I mean yeah all time seriously my daughter sings that because I still play that joint ah parenting so. done right <laughs> parenting goals um, so if you could make a biopic of any musician's life Tupac. Who would you pick? Pac, okay. Has there been a, like a good Pac documentary? There hasn't been. Oh, bio- there's been documentaries, but yeah. biopic, I mean. biopic at all. Yeah. Hmm. But yeah, I think one, I think it's hard to cast. Uh-huh. Like I can't even imagine. Yeah. Who the guy that they cast. got to play Pac in Straight Outta Compton at least looks like him a lot. I don't know too oh, much about he? his. Yeah, I don't know too much about his acting skills because he didn't have that much screen time. But like, 
Yeah, he kind of looked like him. Like he had like the because Pac and Notorious was not no. New. Oh yeah, no, that was, that was a capital no. That was bad. <laughs> no, I overall like the movie. But, yeah, yeah. No. So yeah, that yeah. he's like my all, he's my all time favorite. I was in the Tupac fan club. Aww. I was crying when he got killed. Aww. Everybody was, so was crying when he got so killed. Sad. I remember I was at a high school football game. I was driving driving to Flint, Michigan, with my girlfriend. Mm. And you heard, and I heard on the radio. Mm-mm-mm. I know I want to pour out some like... of this liquor right now, but it's, <laughs> it's carpet, so <laughs> we probably shouldn't do that. Um, one more. I think we only have one more. Um, what is your favorite board game? No, you we did that. that. We did that. We did that. Shout out to Bourbon. Uh, okay, I think spades. Does that count? Uh, I still don't for even black know. Black people, it counts. I don't either. Oh, I'm glad spades. you said that. Oh shit, we just had a conversation we... about this yesterday. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Did you speak up? <laughs> no, I did not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't say you don't know how to play spades around black people. No. You can't. You, you cannot. can't say it out loud. No, among bougie black folks, apparently, is very common. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. But, like, oh, I had no one to teach me it. Like, my parents are Ethiopian. They don't know about oh, spades. Okay. That you, shit is intimidating. Right. Like, the first thing I heard about spades is that it's always a fight. So I'm you like, don't know I don't how to play spades either? <laughs> from Kentucky? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, here's the thing. My uncle taught me. I don't even know what to say right now. <laughs> You know what? We're going to wrap this yeah, up. Yeah, we need to wrap it up right now. <laughs> I honestly don't even know what it looks like. <laughs> I at least know what it looks like. I know the language I of it. I shouldn't have said that out loud. You shouldn't. <laughs> okay, can I redeem myself and say that I know that there are books and you can renege? And... Well, you, you shouldn't renege. Oh, but it's an option? You don't want to be a renigger. Oh, well, on that note. I do know. <laughs> <laughs> I know the game for that verb, honestly. Right? I was like, wait, what are you guys saying? <laughs> I know you're like, hold on, what, what, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Who made uh, up that term? Well, you should, you should teach us to play spades one day. Absolutely. I, I have actually um, been asked to host a spades party. Ooh. So Is bring, this our official? Bring your strap. It's <laughs> <laughs> <is> very serious. <laughs> Uh, well, I'm excited. This has been such a blessing. Such a blessing. Well, thank you. you I feel like you're at such a incredible point in your career. Don't so say that. You even like, I feel like that set me up for the fall. No, 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 no. For like <laughs> the like extended rise. Okay, for you ahead. to even Let bless it. us with your presence. Right. At right. the arc moment. of my career still be bending towards highness. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Martin Luther King Jr. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And we're you came almost by, talking about the same thing. <laughs> you came by even though you're on deadline for the most or the next amazing thing that I'm sure you're gonna do. So and sick, so yes, and sick. Listen, oh, blessings on blessings. Blessed. Thank you so much. Um, yeah. Is there anything that you would like to promote? Where can people find you? What's going on? I'm on Twitter, Ida Bay Wells. Just kidding. At <laughs> um, <laughs> and Hannah Jones, and I have a website. So. Okay, is the me. website. They can find me on the Google. <laughs> on the Googles. <laughs> NicoleHannahJones.com. Uh, she writes regularly at New Look York Times Look out for my new magazine. single. Just oh, <laughs> mixtape coming soon. My new single, my new single is <laughs> dropping. Lit. It's lit. It's my, it's my disc tape of Meek. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that'd be incredible. <laughs> Please nah, do I wouldn't. It oh. Did you ever think you were going to be a rapper? No. Oh. I did for a long um, time. Well, <laughs> I definitely wanted the salt and pepper hair back in the Ooh. day. Ooh, yes. No. That asymmetric cut was everything. Mm-hmm. Well, follow- Did you hear all that happened? <laughs> huh? Did you hear all that happened? No. Her hair got like burned out on one side. <gasps> and that. And she just made it that work. is how what? she made music hair history. Yes. She changed the entire game. Ingenuity, man. That's Damn. incredible. Mm. <laughs> follow Nicole for her mixtape and more. <laughs> and more hip hop observations. <laughs> That's right. 
Thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Heaven McGee. Oh my God. <laughs> Why is that so funny? <laughs> uh, Tracy McGee, how you doing? <laughs> I'm great. I'm great. I'm ready to buy some rounds. You want to go first? Who are you buying around for? Remember when you said you didn't know who Tony Hawk was? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I was so insulting to my spirit. <laughs> I got a very angry tweet. Like, Good. <laughs> I'm glad. Anyways, I would like to buy a round for the Tony Hawk video game soundtracks. <laughs> oh, the soundtrack. Yes. Mm. So when we were kids, we like begged and begged and begged and begged for a PlayStation. <laughs> and we like didn't really have a lot of toys growing up. We like made board games and shit like Aww. out of paper. So we were like, yo, just give us this one thing. <laughs> so like my parents finally caved. And you know how like all game consoles are like $200, mm-hmm. which is exorbitant. <laughs> yeah. So they got it for us, but they <laughs> they didn't realize the games were also really expensive. <laughs> so they never bought us games. Because <laughs> the games would be like the good ones are like $50. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Like, it's the fourth of the console. <laughs> anyway, so like at that time, they all came with like a sample pack. And in our sample pack was like Madden, I don't know, Spyro, that dragon dude. <laughs> oh, I always wanted to play that game. Crash Bandicoot and Tony Hawk video game. Mm-hmm. So obviously we played all of those, the sample games <laughs> of like the first level of each one. Right. I feel like the Tony Hawk uh, video game soundtrack is what introduced me to like my emo pop punk phase. Mm, it's so real. <laughs> I had a similar experience after I started playing Guitar Hero. Mm. A lot of good screaming emo songs. <laughs> yes. 30 Seconds to Mars. What's yes. up? So I would like to play one for you. Yay. It's called Superman by Goldfinger. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Here's a little taste of uh, young emo heaven. Oh. So here I am. Very angsty, even though it sounds happy. That is an accurate description of me. It is. Me right now, IRL. (laughs) The soundtrack of Heaven's Life. Yes. Also, in like a different lifetime, I think I I would have been like a pro skateboarder. Mm, Maybe it's not too late. Mm, Last year, Kanye West... Always like was like the headliner at the X Games. Mm. That's like the Oscars for skateboarders. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I felt like all of my lives were combining just in this one moment <laughs> for me. I was like, thank you, universe. <laughs> so there's this picture of Tony Hawk and Kanye West sitting next to each other. <laughs> I was like, thank you. Aww. This is specifically for me. <laughs> um, so yeah, shout out to Tony Hawk. Shout out to all the skateboarding video games. But Skateboard. <laughs> yes. Skateboard. But also shout out to the Tony Hawk soundtrack. <laughs> Who are you buying around for? I'm buying around for hookah and hookah lounges. <laughs> okay, I'm listening. But I was always like, this is the dumbest thing that I've ever, like, <laughs> nothing happens. It doesn't taste like vanilla citrus mint at Yeah, all. the flavors be mass specific. Right, exactly. <laughs> I'm just like, this is so stupid. But um, when was it? Last weekend, I think? I find myself at this um, hookah. I finally went to Queens. I went to go play around oh, in Queens. Yes, that's the best place for hookah. 
Hookah and food. Yes. And it was like a Saturday and it was really nice outside. It was breezy. And I remember my pants were way too tight. I'm outgrowing <laughs> all of my clothes, right? But I have this really cute pair of jeans. I was like, no, I'm getting these jeans. I'm going out. And like, it wasn't really a lounge. Like all the chairs are just like regular bar chairs or whatever. Mm. So I'm sitting in this chair and I'm not very comfortable. I'm like, all right, whatever. I'll do like a couple puffs and then be like, all right, it's time to go. And so I did it. And I like took it into my lungs. <laughs> and I also had um, some random happy hour drink. And within like three minutes, it felt like my brain was like floating to the top of my skull, but in oh a good God. way. It was Jesus. great. <laughs> it was great. It felt like there were a bunch of like tiny little effervescent bubbles like popping in my brain at the same time. And I was like, oh my God, this feels so like it was just really relaxing. I was mm. just like super, super chill. And I was like, why don't I do this every day of my life? Like, I got so comfortable. I took off my shoes. This is outside. I'm like, where oh I was in God. the outside seating. I uh, was like, you're in a restaurant. No, <laughs> it was outside. I unbuttoned my tight-ass pants. <laughs> and I yes. laid back. And I just yes. smoked hookah. I figured out how to blow smoke out of my nose. I was like, oh I'm my a God. house. Levels. I've never felt that Levels. cool in my life. There's a great picture of me doing hookah at another place. <laughs> blowing smoke out of my nose is gonna be my neo soul album cover Ooh, it's so good i'm thinking of going to do some hookah after i leave here because i'm just like yeah i'm a little yeah like a glass of prosecco and like some <laughs> some guava hookah Ooh. i don't know yeah do they so, got mango though most places i've been have mango okay off all three places yeah so we should do some hookah sometime but like the buzz that it gives me is just like just enough mm. you know and if I, if I, like, hit my plateau and I need to, like, get a little wavier, as the kids say, <laughs> just get another glass of Prosecco, you know? And you can just, getting like, wavy, keep it wavy. <laughs> But I love it. It makes me feel super cool. It bothers me that I'm probably polluting my lungs, though. But it's You'd so expensive right. up here that I can't do it often <laughs> enough. Shout out to hookah. You, I feel like you're living your best life right now, Tracy. I am. I am. Baby, pass me to hookah. Baby, pass me to hookah. I do not know what you're doing. What is that song? What? Tyga and Young Thug. Uh, it's the song that Tracy Ellis Ross was singing in all of her oh, Instagram. Oh, yeah. We did it. We did it. We did it. Hooray. <laughs> you started the song while I had a mouthful of bourbon. I'm sorry. It's okay. It's okay. Special shout out to Nicole Hannah-Jones for stopping by. Like, I just feel so much smarter just sitting next to her. <laughs> um, please don't forget the little people when you win at Pulitzer. Come back. We love you. <laughs> Take us with you. Yes. Shout out to the Pod Squad. Pod Squad. Uh, we have some new credits for you guys because we just want to make sure you understand everything that everyone does on the squad. Yes, these are real people with real jobs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so this podcast is produced by Eleanor Kagan. You know her. You love her. Yay. Editorial Oversight by Jenna Weiss-Berman. You know her. You love her. <laughs> Production support comes from Julia Furlon. And the newest member of our pod squad is Meg Kramer. What up, Meg? Yay. Say hi to Meg, guys. Hi, Meg. <laughs> Thanks for demonstrating, Tracy. <laughs> and as always, shout out to Paul Rest of Argo Studios. Today's dance is jazz hands. Yes. Yay. Paul's got the ill jazz hands. <laughs> also, a thank you to our in-house musicians. That is Jean Gray. You can find her online on Twitter at Jean Greasy. And Don Will of the Almighty Tiny Morgan. You can follow him on Twitter at D-O-N-W-I-L-L. 
Thank you to the heaven. Thank you to the Tracy. Heaven, where can people find you? <sighs> I don't have a thing yet for this is my a different favorite one. part of every show. Why is it such a struggle? <laughs> Anyways, heaven. The noun. <laughs> rants the verb. <laughs> my favorite. Can someone help me come up with a better one? If you have a better explanation of heaven's Twitter name that you can say. With relative ease. With relative ease. <laughs> it's not. I don't need like a paragraph after everyone <laughs> doing too much. Where can the people find you, Tracy? The people can find me on Twitter at Brokey McPoverty. That is Brokey as in I'm broke. That is McPoverty as in I am broke. <laughs> <laughs> um, and follow us on Twitter and email us stuff and follow us on Facebook at Another Round. Take your freaking medicine, everybody. Also, go on vacation. Ooh. If you can. If you can. I can. Or staycation. Staycation. Staycation's real. Yeah. Try to drink like two glasses of water today. Back up your data. Back up. (laughs) I still have not done any of that. Eat some grapes. Oh, yeah. I'm into that. Mm Mm-hmm. Do that. Eat some grapes. All right, guys. Tell the guy. Until next time. Bye. 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 Kevin, do you love pigeons now? Do you hate them less? I do hate them less. Yay! I'm not saying my dislike wasn't necessary or fueled by real things. That is that is fair. I hate them slightly less. Yay! That's all you can ask of me. (laughs) Then I have done my job. Wait, wait, wait. On the soul matrix, where where did they land? <laughs> oh, they definitely have souls. Okay. Absolutely. Update your spreadsheets, kids. Pigeons <laughs> have souls. <laughs> no one else has a spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> I should probably publish it at some point. <laughs> nope. <laughs>